Welcome to Everybody A, Lucy Plays Gay. A queer exploration of the AMC show Ragdoll. With your hosts, Speak Pirate, a.k.a. Joanna, I'm here, I'm queer, and I can't believe we didn't know about this series. And your other host, LCO123, a.k.a. Vina, a proud member of the Church of Lake Edmonds, which is Lucy's character's name. Oh my gosh, so this show, this is a British murder mystery. Uh, everyone is, you know, detective constable, detective sergeant, detective inspector. Um, and we have Lucy, who is playing a tattooed vegan detective who, lights and sirens alert, is extremely queer. Yeah, it is. Um, it is really good. It's definitely not for the faint of heart. It is a pretty grim, uh, gory show and, you know, fairly disturbing. Um, should we maybe do a little because we might have some listeners who don't maybe want to watch the show, but would like to understand what we're talking about. Should we give a little like very brief capsule description of like what this show is? Yeah, yeah. So uh, this show is uh, Lucy is part of the um, London Police Department, London Metropolitan Police Department, and uh, she plays an American uh, who is like an American expat who has uh, finished her criminal justice degree uh, in the UK and who is now uh, working with their police. Uh, and they are tracking um, the ragdoll killer, who is a serial killer who calls themselves uh, the Faust. Uh, it has kind of a final destination vibe to it. Because in the first episode, uh, the Faust provides a kill list of the people who he is going to be killing. Uh, the final person on that list is none other than Detective Sergeant Nathan Rose, a member of the police department, someone who works on uh, the same team as Lake Edmonds, Lucy's character. Uh, and so it's, it's really about trying to catch or stop the killer uh, before they get to the point of killing Nathan Rose. Uh, and spoiler alert, uh, the police are not tremendously good at stopping this killer. The final destination vibe comes from kind of like knowing, okay, this is the next person the killer is going to try to get. The police do everything that they can to try and thwart or prevent that uh, with generally very little success. Right, right. And part of the sort of uh, backstory of this, both the Detective Rose and um, this this Faustian killer, who I mean, <laughs> reminds me of the PLL puppet show, certainly, uh, is that there was this big murder trial that happened before the start of the series that um, sort of blew up very spectacularly and ended with Rose in a mental institution and uh, this new killer sort of obsessing about people, various people involved in the initial case. And so there's a lot in the show about mental health, about um, kind of sort of unreliable narrators. It's very much the, you know, the detective that is sort of in too deep on the case in a lot of ways. And um, also kind of rounding out the team is uh, Emily Baxter, I I feel like the show is doing kind of a will they won't they between Rose and Baxter, but honestly, the will they won't they that I want is between Emily Baxter and Lake. 
uh, Lake pretty clearly has a crush on Emily Baxter, who herself has some rather queer energy. Oh, yeah, I totally agree. And while I agree the main will they won't they is between uh, between Emily Baxter and Nathan Rose, I think the Lake Edmonds Emily Baxter energy is certainly there. Uh, if you're looking for it, I, I I gave you fair warning about the episode where Lake lends her her jacket. Uh, yes. Which, yes. And and then and then tells Emily that burgundy is a good color on her. Uh, but but Lucy's character, Lake, is like constantly fawning all over Emily uh, while simultaneously having no time for the many straight white men running around the story, making everything worse. Uh, should we, should we start by talking about like this, the queerness of this character Lucy plays? Oh my goodness. I definitely think we should, because that's like, that's what brought me to the show. Like when I, when I, I think, and I also, I saw a picture of her character with the tattoos and I was like, oh, oh my. And then I was like, I, I immediately, yeah, I immediately contacted you to how, how did we not know about this? Are we, are like. Are we not dialed in enough to queer PLL news? I don't know how we could be more dialed in. So, uh, yeah, but um, so the queerness of Lake's character, um, Lucy does a phenomenal job in this role. She like exudes queerness. And I was really, I was really reflecting on this because we don't see her like in bed with another woman. We don't see her like making out with another woman. Um, so it's like, where where is it coming from? Like, how does she immerse this character in like such a queer energy? And I think part of it, you mentioned the soft butch wardrobe that she's mm-hmm. in uh, pretty much at all times. But I actually think it is truly in the way that she does not give a fuck about any of the men. Yes. In this, in this story, like, and she makes no bones about the fact that she is smarter than them and she is working harder than them. And they are just like, like, they are like trees that she is like skiing around as she pursues the killer. Like that's, that's how it feels. Oh, I, I totally agree. There is very much this vibe of like, this character is not here for men both from a standpoint of like the way that she is written and the way that she is acted um like she is she is just really um she yeah she just does not care about the many dudes she does not trust them she is not like wooed by their doodliness there's nothing about you know them that nobody she's never being flirted with by a man or if she is she's like very much rejecting that like she just has this real, like, no-nonsense attitude about it. Um, and she feels very, you know, she there are elements of, like, Spencer Bull in a China Shop Hastings to this character. Like, there is this real, there are multiple times in the story where she's told by somebody, don't leave the car. And she, of course, immediately leaves the car and gets <laughs> herself into trouble. Um, yeah, it is a really impressive performance because we've talked about the fact that Aria often feels like the least queer of the liars to us. Yes. And I think so much of that has to do with Presria. But like, you know, and we also just spent a whole period of time talking about Emily uh, not feeling like a queer character despite us being told that she is one. And I was just so impressed by how lived in this performance of Lucy's feels and how 
the this is to me is an example of the writers, the directors, and the actor themselves understanding that queerness is about more than who you sleep with. It is um, a piece of somebody's identity. It is sort of about the way you move through the world. And Lake just moves through the world like a queer person. Yeah, I completely, I completely agree. Um, she's also, I, I think, I mean, Baxter is a good detective as well, but like Edmonds is the hardest working detective on the team. And almost every time there's like an actionable break in the case, it comes from something that she's working on. Yeah. Well, and I also like that there's kind of an implication that she's like a little bit of a fuck boy. Like the, <laughs> there's there's a part in the story where um, she gets injured and is in the hospital and a presumably, I mean, it's very heavily implied to be a former girlfriend of hers kind of shows up at the hospital and like Lucy bringing a little bit of hat party energy, I would say, is like. <laughs> very much doing everything she can to like not engage with this person and like make this person like not interested in continuing the relationship but she's like being very indirect about it like she like I think she like multiple times gives her a wrong number and it's (laughs) very funny but it's very like it feels very real and like it gives you a sense even in a show where you know we're not seeing her in bed with another woman or anything it absolutely gives you a sense of like what kind of queer person Lake is. Yeah, I completely agree. Also, uh, Lake in, you know, uh, in an homage perhaps to one Ms. Aria Montgomery, uh, Lake has a very elastic relationship to the truth. In that scene that you're referring to with presumably her ex-girlfriend showing up at the hospital, like, Lake tells like a series of escalating lies uh, about like yes. the, ex- the ex-girlfriend did not even know that Lake was like still in the UK, much less like still in London. Uh, and so Lake like tells this wild story about having gotten some fellowship at like a college and uh, like the, the ex-girlfriend says like, oh, I've you know never heard of that department before. And you know, Lake like yep. continues spinning like, oh, it's it's new. It's like ba ba ba. And then the ex girlfriend is like, yeah, this was in your personal belongings, and it's her police badge. <laughs> and like, I also love the fact that like Lake does not spend even two seconds apologizing for the wild lies. No, nope. she has just been, like <laughs> she has just been like dead to rights, caught in, and she's just like, oh. Yeah. Yes, yes, I'm on this big case. Like, <laughs> let, me, yeah. let me let me give you three fake phone numbers, and then we'll still pretend like we're going to be in touch again. Well, also similar to Aria, there is a very throwaway line that she was involved with a teacher at one point, like a professor. Um, mm-hmm. I think when she was maybe in college, and they they um, they don't really dwell on that. Like, it's very much a throwaway line, but it is. Um, yeah, it is an it is an interesting moment. And uh, there is this sense that as this queer American character who's also like heavily tattooed and just like there's this sense that she is tuned into aspects of the culture that maybe uh, Baxter and Rose are not. Yeah. Oh, I totally agree. Also, the tattoos like so her tattoos are very queer. And at one point. Uh, they're trying to identify a previous victim of the ragdoll killer who has like a distinctive, um, a distinctive tattoo. Uh, she has found the artist who she believes probably did that work 
and she goes to them to uh, to try to get them to talk. And in order to do that, she like agrees to let the artist tattoo whatever he wants on her, like on yes. at a place. And she she specifically says like you know as long as it's like three inches above the wrist and like because this is like this is like her nature. She has all of these secrets her tattoos can't be like visible at work and stuff like that so it's it's just like one of these interesting layers to her character and also there's this backstory um that we kind of gets filled in a little bit over the course of the season about this ex-lover named naomi who is a manipulative you know piece of bad bad news and as soon as she's getting this tattoo uh the tattoo artist says who's naomi because he sees that there's a bad cover-up on one of her other tattoos uh, that's on her opposite arm. So I really like the scene in the tattoo parlor because I feel like it really, um, it really kind of shows you who the character is and what the character is hiding. I agree. And one of the things that I really appreciated about her character is that in the first episode, I was like, oh, is she kind of going to be like the annoying American or the like, like she's very, um, she talks like openly about like problems within the police department and she talks openly about like misogyny and like various like social issues. And so I was like, oh, is she going to be kind of like the SJW thorn in everybody's side? And what I love is like she actually gets to be a real character too. Like she is a person who is pointing all of those things out and sometimes to the annoyance of other characters and maybe sometimes the audience is sort of meant to roll their eyes at her. But she's also very much taken seriously by the narrative and given depth and like you said, given the opportunity to solve a lot of key elements of the case. Yeah, I completely agree. And she's also like part of her being American or part of her being queer or part of her being a lot younger than a lot of the other people on the police force, she definitely seems to come at things with fresh eyes. Like she doesn't yes. think, she doesn't think that Rose is infallible just because Rose is one of them. Yeah. Yeah. And so should we talk a little bit about Rose? Uh, the ostensible main character who yes. quite, quite honestly, I spent a large part of the series just like, kind of hoping the killer would get to him already. <laughs> yes, I agree. Yeah, he's, I would say probably, and this is a maybe a weird thing to say about a show that I generally liked, I think he's probably the least successful part of the show, and he is the main character. Um, I just think that there is a lot of backstory about this character that makes it sometimes hard to know his motivations, not in a, like, cool mystery way, but in a, like, we need a little bit more about this character kind of way. I also just, I, you know, I, I, I wasn't, I wasn't charmed by him, you know? Um, but a big part of his character that's quite interesting is that he's had um, a, a breakdown. He spent some time in um, a, a mental institution. He has even sort of in this indirect way called out a hit on himself. Uh, and that is an element that kind of drives throughout the season. And I think it's really interesting the way that this show interacts with mental health, especially in comparison to Pretty Little Liars, where it's like we've talked about how like after Spencer comes back from Radley and it's treated like, oh, well, because she was in Radley, that means she's automatically evil and automatically on the A-team. And I think a thing that Ragdoll does is it shows the way that mental health and PTSD can 
sort of create an unreliable narrator out of someone or create some sort of harmful uh, mental patterns out of someone and even potentially make them dangerous to themselves or others. But that doesn't mean that they are unworthy of compassion. And I think the show walks a really pretty fine line with that. It feels like pretty trauma informed storytelling to me. Yeah, I would I would definitely agree with that. And I think that you're right on about Rose just having too much backstory. I actually looked up, um, because there's so much backstory with him, I was like, is this actually like the second season of a show or something? <laughs> like, was there like a whole previous season where all these things happened with like the other case that he worked? But that does not seem to be, uh, that does not seem to be the situation. But basically the, the, the like short version of the backstory of Rose is that there was um, some kind of like, I forget what they're, they're calling him, like a, an arsonist killer um, yeah. who's, uh, who's like killing people by lighting them on fire. And Rose catches him, uh, but like does it through like extrajudicial means. Like we don't know exactly what the situation was, but like evidence was not collected properly. Statements were not collected properly. Um, you know, a lot of corners were cut in order to like find this person and make this arrest. Uh, someone blows the whistle on him uh, and the case winds up being thrown out. So the killer walks free, um, eventually like kills again. Uh, and, and so there's this whole, uh, in, the, in the scene in the courtroom, Rose like loses it and just like attack, you know, does a Toby Cavanaugh just like yes. becomes, becomes the police officer who's so full of rage that they're just wailing on this suspect in front of everyone. Uh, has to be pulled off of him, winds up being committed to uh, a, a mental hospital to try and regain uh, regain some sort of balance. Uh, and then while in this mental hospital, here's Tell from another person uh, who he befriends in there, here's Tell about this person called the Faust, who you can call, you can give him the name of a person you want to kill, and he will kill them for you, but the bargain is that then he will kill you as well. Um, and so this is what this is what Rose has done. He is given the name of I forget what the name of the like the arsonist killer. They have some kind of they have he also has some kind of like fancy serial killer name. Um, but he gives the name of the the killer who walked free, uh, and he gives his own name. And so that is that is where the story really begins. Um, the the previous killer has now been killed by the Faust. Their body is part of this ragdoll situation uh, that the police are investigating. And the kill list shows that Nathan Rose himself is going to be killed. Uh, he's like the sixth person on the list, I think. And if you're thinking, wow, that's a lot of backstory. Yeah, it is. It and is that's a lot like of the short version. Of that's the, the short version. And that all technically happens like before we enter the story. Properly. <laughs> there are yes. there are brief flashbacks, but they're very brief. Um, and so like, yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot to bring in, especially when um you know, and obviously as a queer woman, I might be a bit biased, but like, I think that Emily and Lake are just much more interesting characters. And an interesting element of Emily's story is that 
because there really seems to be this sort of theme throughout the season of like white men constantly making everything worse. And an interesting thing about Emily is that she is a black woman and she has been recently promoted. Right. Yes. Uh, And there's a lot of grumbling throughout the season of like white men being like, well, you know, for optics sake, I can't fire you or for optics sake, like you're going to be the, you know, the sort of the figurehead of this investigation or like, wow, it was so easy for you to get this promotion as like a black woman. And she is constantly sort of like biting back against those claims. Um, And there's even a moment where like Lucy Hale's character Lake kind of has a very like white feminism moment of being like, oh, like, go you fighting the fight. And Emily has this response that's basically like, I just want to live my life. I don't want to be constantly like fighting the good fight. Um, And so I really, I really liked that sort of running story. Like this felt very much like a, a detective show. That like sometimes I feel like with some of these British detective shows, they can feel very like in a time capsule of like this could be happening in 1950 or this could be happening in like 1990. And this very much feels like a story that is happening now that a lot of the discussions culturally that we've been having over the last several years are part of like baked into this story. Yeah, I like that. And I would say that like when we talk about uh, Lake and Emily being like the more successful characters they do feel very lived in. Like Emily too feels like a character who has lived these experiences. Uh, And we also, for all that, like we hear this, you know, we we keep hearing these like sort of like muffled remarks from other people in the police department who are acting like, um, you know, like maybe she doesn't wholly deserve to be where she is, or maybe she wholly doesn't deserve to keep that promotion. We understand that, like, one of the ways that Emily has gotten where she is, is with, like, a rigorous devotion to the truth and to doing things the right way and to serving the public. Uh, And these are all things that, like, are of the highest value to her. Uh, And they really, like, so even though she and Rose are are very close, they're friends, they're confidants, it's definitely a major point of conflict and of tension in their relationship, especially because, again, spoiler alert, uh, it turns out that she is actually the one who blew the whistle on his poor handling of the evidence in the previous case. And furthermore, because she knew that they would not take it seriously if she brought that complaint forward, she convinced a white male officer mm-hmm. to be the one like she she told him what had happened she drew up the complaint and he signed it and submitted it so that the department would take it seriously yeah which is a great twist um one of my favorite scenes between emily and rose during the season is uh there's an episode where they are, are um kind of doing a, like an overnight stakeout at the home of, of one of the people on the kill list. And they have this whole plan about how they're going to try to trick the killer the following morning uh, into thinking that that this man has been killed before the killer has gotten to him. Because one of the themes throughout the season is that the, the, the ragdoll killer or the Faust is so dedicated to his specific plan that if any element of it goes in any way awry, he like doesn't know how to handle it. And he just freaks out. He's extremely controlling uh, and extremely specific in how his plan is going to come out. And there's a scene where Emily and Rose are talking 
And I believe it's her who who she says something to him to the effect of like, what happens to us if if this goes badly? Like what happens to us if if, you know, we can't keep working together or this case blows up and. You know, as a viewer of many will they won't they's, I'm expecting it to be like, oh, this is the coded moment where they're talking about their relationship. And there is that element of that. But then she follows it up by saying like something to the effect of like. I can't talk to anybody else about this. Like you're the only one who knows what this is. And I loved the nuance of that because to me, it was so much more of an interesting spin than just simply we're destined to be together. It was this idea of like, we have witnessed the specific traumas of this really horrific world that we live in. And I don't know how to talk to anybody else about this. It it reminds me a little bit of the liars thing of like, you you can't explain it to somebody who didn't live through it. You just have to hold on to the people who did live through it because they're the only ones who can understand it. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah, yeah. And in that same episode, there's like a moment where this old guy who they're, you know, supposed to be protecting hits on Emily in this like really gross way. And she's like, I'm going to sleep outside. And there's the, the way that they play that is like, she's really grossed out by it. But there, it's also like, not terribly surprising to her because like mm-hmm. this is what she has to deal with yes yes a gross older man hitting on her while she's just trying to do her job and keep him alive exactly exactly yeah yeah um what did you make of the faust's relationship with his wife oh i think that that was one of the most fascinating elements of the show uh because at first like this, this show is very good at doing things where like it presents a situation to you and it's like, okay, this, what it appears to be is X. And right. then like the, the more you zoom in on it, like it is not X at all. It turns out to be like, not even like Y and Z. It turns out to be like FG or something like, and you're just like, oh, how unexpected. Um, so it seems like she is either a patsy or like, you know, per- perhaps someone who is being controlled by him. And then as the show, you know, as the show kind of goes on its way, it actually turns out that she's someone who's very much aware of what he's doing and is, it- it's ambiguous whether she is like just masterminding or like, you know, kind of puppeteering uh, what he is, what he is up to. Yeah, and and also for, for any uh for any sex education fans, it is a very jarring role to to see um to see one of the moms is is the one who's playing this this character. So it's very weird to see her like playing this kind of potentially evil person. Um yeah, I I liked that a lot and it, you know, um I was actually just recently re-listening to our Shadow Play episode. And you talked about in the scene, the sometimes the villains win scene between Arya and Ezra, that what's one of the things that compelled you so much about that scene is that it's one of the few moments where it feels like the sort of equation of their relationship could flip. And it could be that maybe Arya could have a little bit more of the power and Arya could be a little bit more, you know, masterminding what was going on. And I think that that's a really interesting element in the relationship between these two characters on Ragdoll is like, who is in charge, who is like pulling the strings, what is going on. 
Um, and the show, like, one of the things about this show is, like, they there are ma- very many things that they do not explain, that they do mm-hmm. not go to, and that they leave up for interpretation. And that's definitely one of them. Yeah, I, I like that element of it quite a lot. Also, like, I, I will say that, like, the way that the Faust operates, it's very much like if A decided to start killing people, uh, which, of course... Yeah. A isn't going to do because A wants to, you know, have the liars be their dolls. But um, the methods of murder are extremely ingenious. Uh, The Faust seems absolutely omniscient uh, for the first several. And and they're like, like the plots are not simple plots uh, that that wind up. It's not like it's not like this person is just being shot from like 500 yards away. Um, They're like. They're, they're plots that involve like pollen and a switched inhaler and a snake in a backpack and a prison van that gets into an accident. And like, like there are just like the complication level of the plots is like, it is like A meets a James Bond villain who is like more competent than normal at execution. Yeah. Uh, so, so they're, they're very like it's very interesting like you spend like a lot of the first few episodes just wondering like well how is it going to how is it going to go down what's going to happen um and it's always like i mean it can be very gory but it's always pretty fascinating to see how it works and often the kills are very hard to trace back to one person because they they're like people are being killed in all these different kinds of ways like they're being killed in like all these different kinds of like they're being killed sometimes like in public, you know, they're like suddenly um, like just falling down. And it's I mean, it's it's is very creepy. One of to me, the the most probably chilling one and, and trigger warning here for like description of, of violence here. But like but there's a reporter character who is sort of. Uh, poking around the corners of the story for most of the season. And it's implied that she and Rose have had kind of an on-again, off-again relationship and that she's been, you know, kind of a thorn in the side of the police department. There's also an extremely queer scene between her and Emily where uh, Emily wants to talk to her and uh, the the reporter is like, you're going to have to unzip me first. And there's like some real hate flirt vibes. But anyway... uh, the way that and you're not necessarily expecting this character to get killed and the way that she ends up getting killed is via a medieval torture device uh given to women who was is it like women who have told something that they're not supposed to tell Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. something like that which is obviously very specific to the fact that she is a reporter and it is an extremely grisly death she ended up like drowning in her own blood and um yeah, it, it yeah, very very specific, very creepy. Yeah, and of the uh, of the first five people who are on the kill list, every one of them is killed like in police custody or with a with a police like yards away from them. Uh, so it's really like it, it it's really like one of those you know the killer is mocking the police quite literally. Yeah, yeah, and, and and like how they are able to kind of start messing with the killer is by finding little ways of sort of poking at his plan because he has all these specific plans. Um, there's also a really interesting moment where the killer and his wife are talking 
and she compares him to like Jeffrey Dahmer or Ted Bundy. And he very specifically is like, I, I'm, I'm not like those people because I don't get pleasure out of this. I do this for a reason. I do this to like prove a point. Um, and that's an interesting moment of like, just the specificity of the writing, I think, and the shades of gray that are brought to these characters. Mm-hmm. Oh, I totally, I totally agree. So we've talked a lot about kind of Rose and, and Emily and their, uh, you know, what they've got going on as they hunt for the Faust. But it is actually thanks to Lucy's character, Lake Edmonds, that they even find out about, the, like, obviously, Rose knows a lot about this because he set this in motion. But whether it's because he's traumatized or whether it's because um, this is just the kind of guy he is, he does not give that information to Emily or to anyone on the investigative team, even though it could potentially have saved the lives of several people on this list as the killer is making their way through it. It is only thanks to uh, Lake Edmonds that they are able to like trace some phone records and like do some research and find out about this killer that calls themselves the Faust and to find out like what exactly and to, and to get more into like what might be going on uh, with Rose as Rose continues to just go further off the deep end. Yeah. And I, you know, I appreciate that oftentimes I feel like, like the audience is supposed to be on Rose's side, right? He's our, he's our good white male protagonist. And I feel like it would be very easy for Lake to be framed as a bad person because she dares to question him. And I think the show does a really good job of legitimizing and validating why she would be questioning him because he's acting really erratically and like not being truthful and all this stuff. Um, while also providing somewhat plausible explanations for like why he is not telling the truth. Like this show is very good at showing multiple sides to things. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I completely, uh, completely agree. And also like Lake is good at talking to people like she gets information from the tattoo artist she gets information from like a random cleaning person who had heard rose behaving erratically on the roof like she takes information uh from from anywhere that she can get it uh and she really like she's a good detective you can tell uh that she's a good detective she's good at like doing the actual work and putting that in uh to put the pieces together well, and what's funny about that is like we've often commented on the fact that Arya is one of the better interrogators of the liars, mm-hmm. even though she doesn't end up having to do it as often. <laughs> yeah, she's I think she is by far the most effective interrogator, uh, even though I think Spencer would argue that. But Arya is much better at actually getting the information, whereas Spencer mostly just has like an intimidation tactic. Well, she's good at talking, like you said, she's good at talking to people in a way where they don't necessarily realize that they're divulging information until she already has it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, So, yeah, I I really like Lake's character. Uh, I think that she's really interesting. And there's, there's really good rapport between her and Emily like obviously I feel like it's it's a very shippable vibe but there's also just like that really good like uh you know kind of buddy cop banter between them like you were you were talking about the scene where uh Emily like is saying like what's your first name and uh she says that it's Lake and she's like 
I'm British. I'm not going to call a grown woman Lake. <laughs> like, there's a second, you know, and yeah. then there's also uh, there's also someone has been um, like someone has been uh, there's there's been a murder plot that involves someone who was in prison, uh, and they're they're tracing like where their food came from. And it turns out that this person was vegan, and so their meal was prepared at the special vegan facility. And so uh, Baxter says, "Well, we're we're gonna go and we're gonna talk to them. They're vegans. Their security is probably shit." And Lake says, "I'm a vegan," and Baxter's like, "That was never in doubt." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Lake is like often kind of the butt of the joke, but in a way that, like. She's kind of in on it, I think, with Emily. I think she's okay mm-hmm. with it with Emily. I have a question for you, which is that we have talked about how in season four, when Spencer is suspicious of Prezra, her investigation into him has a bit of an edge of romantic jealousy. Do you feel like uh, Lake's investigation of Rose has any element of romantic jealousy with regard to Emily? I think there's a lot of jealousy in it. And I think that part of it is romantic. I think mm-hmm. part of it is like part of career ambition. Like, yes, you know, she's like the youngest person on the team. She's the lowest ranking. He is someone who everyone is like going out of their way to excuse his extremely bad behavior and his yeah. extremely questionable judgment. So I feel part of it is like romantic jealousy. Part of it is like career oriented. And part of it is just like a recognition that like, they are never going to solve the crime if they're leaving it up to this dude. Yeah, yeah. And that there's sort of, like you said about her having fresh eyes, like there is very much this element of like, well, this is just the status quo. Like Lake is just allowed to be kind of like Mr. Weird and Mr. Quirky. And he's sort of, you know, the doctor house of the team in a sense. And Lake is coming in and she's like, no, this isn't how you run a police department. Like this can't go on like this. Well, and I think that a lot of the others, like the general feeling of the police department seems to be like, they seem to blame the complaint. They seem to blame the the exposure. Like that's why the previous killer walked free. No one seems to put the blame on Rose, which is ironic because that's actually 100% where that blame should reside. And I yes. think that um, I think that Lake is one of the characters who really does recognize that, uh, and who feels like it, like she is not part of a blue wall when it comes to Rose. Like she puts a yeah. tracker on his car at one point, and then follows him to see like what nefarious things he's up to, uh, and then actually like calls him while she can see him being not where he says that he is, and challenges him. He's like, "Yeah, I'm at the archives," and she's like. That sounds really windy there because yes. he's like he's like near, that. A, near a train station or near a pier or something like that. Um, so yeah, she is um, she is always uh, like this is a show where the killer is always five steps ahead. Uh, but I really really like the parts of the show where she is shown getting a couple steps ahead of Rose, uh, who just like operates with like a, a mediocre white guy's complete like you know, immunity from consequences. I agree. And I feel like um, there's another scene where they're kind of talking about mental health and and specifically mental health within the police department. 
And Rose is saying something about, you know, he can't talk about his issues with mental health. And she's basically challenging that, saying, like, why not? It's important that people understand that police deal with mental health issues, too. And that, like, this is something that we, you know, we need to handle because, like, people are not getting the treatment that they that they really require. And I like this idea of her as sort of um, potentially like a new energy bringing, you know, being brought into this institution uh what do you make of the perhaps shadier elements of her character oh i find them fascinating especially because as you said like the show doesn't really uh go into depth explaining about them yeah uh so we know that there's this woman naomi who uh the the likely ex-girlfriend hannah like writes a letter and talks about naomi being extremely manipulative and about um, like the the sort of secret in Lake's past is that Naomi was arrested. I don't think that we know what for, but it seems like a fairly serious crime of some kind. Uh, And that Lake, uh, although she is a police officer, Lake secretly put up Naomi's bail uh, and then Naomi has disappeared. We don't know uh, what exactly has become of her. Uh, There are some flashbacks to what seems like, whether it's a car chase or whether it's just like uh, Lake driving a car very erratically, uh, the car, like the car crashes, it rolls down a gully, Uh, Lake is trying to get into the trunk, she can't, she wipes her fingerprints off of the steering wheel uh, and and kind of goes about uh, about her business. So we really don't know like what all of this is about, but whatever it is, it is a deep and dark secret enough that Rose is able to blackmail her uh, at a pivotal point to to do his bidding uh, and to help him uh, to help him escape when he himself is about to be arrested. I so those flashbacks are very, very brief, so it's hard to tell exactly what's going on. Um, but I believe I heard somebody like screaming in the trunk. Mm-hmm. Uh, who I think, which is funny because like it's that's that's so Aria when she has Rollins in the trunk later. Um, I was wondering if perhaps and and then later when she gets into the car accident, she seems to try to get the person out of the trunk. She doesn't. She wipes her fingerprints off, and it seems to be perhaps, um, you know, she's letting this person die. She's making yeah, that. Call. She's left someone for dead. Yeah, I thought perhaps that was Naomi. I don't know. It could yeah. be, but I feel like we don't really know. Like we don't really, and, and this is a show uh, that is. It has showed itself to be unafraid of a complicated backstory. So for I sure, I certainly uh, don't want to say that we necessarily have all of the facts. There's also the mention of this professor uh, that that is is very brief. Yep. So like we don't know if Naomi is the professor, if she's someone who is older. There's also um, the the final uh, the final scene of well I guess we should I guess we should probably talk about the final episode so uh, it is of course uh, Lake Edmonds the only like detective who is actually doing any detecting uh, as as the show goes <laughs> on where where everyone else like the show devolves to the point where like everyone else is just like chasing Rose because he's like yeah. <laughs> out there about to like shoot a random guy on the pier like um like everyone else is like chasing rose and uh like lake edmonds has uh found a particular 
makeup artist who she thinks might be uh, connected to, to all of this and what's going on. And she has like tracked down uh, the person who is the killer's wife, who may or may not be the mastermind. So she is like seeing a video of this person. She has found where she lives. She's going to her house. She is, of course, because she is like a diligent person. She has given Baxter the information about this lead. And she also calls Baxter to say, like, this is where she is. This is where she's going. Yeah. Um, and then she goes into the house. She meets the wife who really denies, like, knowing anything, denies any involvement in anything. But we know that Lake gives her a note. And the notes, the note, which uh, the wife reads aloud, uh, says, offer me honey if someone else can hear this conversation or, or is listening to this conversation because, um, you know, like they're British. So of course the wife is like offering her tea while they're uh, talking about whether anyone has been murdered there recently um, <laughs> as, as you do. Uh, but the wife reads that note out loud. So I feel like one interpretation of this whole conversation with the wife is that it is for show, like that Lake is concerned someone else is listening and is trying to like forge a communication, uh, whether it's because she thinks that the wife might be being abused, whether it's because she thinks that like the killer might be listening or whether it's because she might have some previous knowledge of or involvement with the wife and is trying to like make sure that the guy just isn't around. Um, mm. So that I feel like that's like kind of an ambiguous situation. And then, uh, spoiler alert, although the police eventually do figure out who the killer is, they, of course, uh, do not succeed in apprehending him because, you know, the white men, <laughs> the white men just get in the way and muck it up every time. Um, so the, the killer is eventually done in by the wife who kind of like heaves him off of uh, a railway platform uh, and then walks away with a new short haircut wearing a men's suit. Uh, so there's kind of a, there's kind of a queer vibe to her in that moment as she's walking away. Uh, and later we see that like Lake is kind of like uh, packing up the case file and she takes the photos of the wife and like puts them in her bag. And you don't really know whether it's because she's determined that she is going to go after the wife because she is convinced that the wife was more involved in the killings than the police have yet to acknowledge or whether it's from, you know, some other more personal reason. Um, so there are just a lot of, I feel like there are a lot of question marks about that. Yeah. Um, Kristen and I watched it together and Kristen didn't think that was it. She thought that like, she's putting those photos in her bag because, uh, you know, she's just a little shady about how ambitious she is. Like she's going to go after the wife because like, that's kind of part of her, like, trying to get ahead and like being a really good detective thing. Um, but I feel like it's ambiguous. I feel like it could go either way. I agree that it's ambiguous. And um, yeah, I, I found it really interesting that she, because she's kind of briefly tortured by the ragdoll killer before the like first attempted apprehension by the police that goes, you know, goes pear shaped. And um 
there's a really interesting moment where she's in the hospital and she's yelling about like, I was the one who was tortured. I know she's really convinced that the wife is involved. She's really convinced that like, she really, there really seems to be this thread that like, she feels like she is not being taken seriously enough. And I really liked that moment for the character and also found it really interesting uh, in thinking about the liars and the way that the liars are so frequently not taken seriously, especially knowing that we're about to start this stretch of episodes where Hannah is being tortured and just kind of thinking about like the impact and the the trauma. Again, this show is uh, to quote, to quote Jamie Lee Curtis, it's about trauma. Um, but I, yeah, I really liked that a lot. And yeah, it is the whole ending of the show is extremely ambiguous. You and I were both talking about the fact that like, why doesn't Rose die? It seems really unnecessary for him to live. Um, yes. And it oh seems gosh. like it seems like this whole season has been gearing up for him to die. And there's an interesting moment where uh, the killer is has has essentially poisoned Emily, and Rose is like, I I need to like if I die first, that messes up his plan, and he won't kill you. And he makes a sort of half-hearted attempt to basically like hit his head until he passes out that goes nowhere. Uh, and then and then the killer is able to get away. So um, I again, like I feel like from start to finish, Rose is definitely like the least successful element of the story. Uh, but there's enough other good stuff happening around him that that I still think it's a it's a good show. I mean, honestly, the way the show, I feel like the way that the show should have ended is Rose and the killer are in a standoff and it, it should be like, you know, it, it should be like Holmes and Moriarty going over the falls together. Like it should totally. be like, it should be that like Rose gets him, but Rose has to die in order for the killer to also uh, be taken off the board. Uh, yeah. So honestly, honestly. Rose made this bargain. Rose placed this call. Yes. Rose set this in motion. I feel like the whole like, oh no, now we have to save Nathan Rose. I, I kind of felt like if I were the Faust, I would definitely be like, no take backsies, dude. Like this is not, this is not how it works. Come on. I agree. And it's, it's interesting because an element of the show is definitely like sort of what what are you held to? Like what, what actions have you done or things you have said that then you have to like either stand by or reject later in life. And there is sort of this element of like, you know, kind of like Mona, like she's better now, like Nathan's better now, you know, he's, he was in, he was in the mental institution and he got treatment and like, maybe he's in a more stable place now. And so I guess there is that question of like, do you hold him to this bargain he made when he was in there? But like, he gets a he kind of gets off scot free. I feel yeah, he a hundred percent does. Uh, also, I feel like it's interesting when we talk about trauma informed storytelling. Uh, the criteria that the police seem to use to determine if he's better is: is he out of the mental institution? Yes. Is he present on the police force? Yes. So it's very much like in the pandemic, like, or, or like, oh, can you work? Then you're fine. 
Right. Like, like, he is aggressively not fine. Like, he is continuing to make very bad choices and have very bad judgment and to, like, only really be looking at the short term because, like, PTSD doesn't really allow you to have a lot of long-term planning. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's it's really... It's really fascinating. And the other thing, I will say the only time that I really liked Rose, uh, and, and I felt like it was really fascinating, um, is the time when Rose and Edmonds, uh, despite their mutual loathing for each other, uh, become like kind of symbiotic, uh, symbiotic elements. Like, for example, yeah. uh, he's about to be arrested. And so he he starts a blackmail scheme to get her to help him out of where he is trapped. Uh, and she then has to do it. And similarly, uh, when she is a hundred percent convinced that the wife is involved and doesn't know like why no one is taking her seriously, she deploys Rose to go yeah. and, and tail the wife to see if she'll lead him back to the killer. Uh, and then when Rose is like involved in this confrontation, uh, the killer has said like, no backup, you have to come alone. And Rose, like, again, take backsies, uh, Rose calls Lake uh, and tells her what's going on. And so it's Lake who actually winds up being the one who like really disrupts the plan uh, where the killer was going to have like both Rose and Baxter be killed. Yeah, I, I like that too. And there's an interesting thing of like, they don't exactly trust each other, but they also both know that Emily, like they both love Emily and they mm -hmm. know that Emily is like very by the book. There's a bit of a sort of, you know, Spencer and Caleb teaming up to save Hannah kind of element in there too of like, they you know, I, I don't trust you, but I do trust that you love this person who I also love and that this person is not like she's kind of better than us. She's mm -hmm. not going to break the rules the way that we might. And so, like, we have to kind of do it. Well, I really liked that Rose uh, calls Lake Edmonds uh, to tell her, like, where where he's going uh, and, and what's happening, because I feel like that is an acknowledgement. Like that, that I was hoping it was similar to Dewey acknowledging that he is not the final girl. Like I, I felt like Rose was like sort of acknowledging like, I am probably not the one who's gonna save the day. Like the dude who's next on the kill list is maybe not gonna be the most successful savior in this situation. Right. So always, always good to like have a backup here. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, it, I, I felt like that was a, a good moment. But also, like, then you also uh, have a moment, like, towards the end when the case file is being boxed up and Emily says, you know, I still don't understand how Rose knew what hotel the wife was staying at. Because I think he, like, meets her in a, a hotel bar or something. Uh, and Emily is still kind of like, I just don't know how he figured that out. And Lake kind of like blandly says, well, I don't know, you know, someone must have tipped him off. And we, the audience, know she tipped him off. She yes. 100% like pointed him in that direction. Uh, but she, like, because, because this is also a character who lies as easily as she breathes, she definitely does not own that to Emily in spite of like how much she loves her and how much she respects her. She's still keeping that one very close to the vest. 
And it's a funny moment of like Lucy Hale playing being bad at lying in that mm-hmm. moment. And it's it's very entertaining. Yeah. 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 Uh, what do you like to imagine might be the future for Emily and Lake? Ooh, I would love for, if there is a second season of this, I would just love for them to be the main will they or won't they. Um, yes. Because I, I think that that is like, that that is like what we deserve. And also that would be like, man, there are so many cop shows where, uh, like Rizzoli and Isles for, for a, a main, main example, uh, where the female leads have all this chemistry, but they just don't give it to you. Yeah, uh, and I I feel like that that would be really great. I would love to see uh, Lake Edmonds and Emily Baxter be the will they or won't they? And of course, I am hoping that they will. <laughs> um, well, it's interesting because Rose is in Germany now. He like goes off to Germany. Uh, it's unclear if this show. I mean, I feel like this show has gotten no press, so I have no idea if they'll get a second season. But uh, I would love that as well. It, there's also an implication that Emily is is self-medicating with some alcohol at this point. Uh, but she, like, kind of owns up to it too late. So I'd love to find out more about what the heck happened with Lake and the car crash and Naomi. Um, and there is a very funny moment where, like, her old captain calls her and is like, hey, I just want to talk about Naomi. And she just, like, this felt like a very Aria moment. She just, like, puts the phone down. Like, she just, <laughs> like puts the phone down like nope (laughs) I will not be having this conversation right now thank you very much goodbye um so yeah I but there is a vibe that like the chickens might be coming home to roost on that particular situation yeah I would like to see Lake's character be central in the way that Rose's character was central like I would not mind yes like having season two be about whatever the situation is with Lake's complicated backstory and how that might be like how each of these police has like apparently uh, apparently given rise to a psychotic megalomaniac uh, serial killer who they then have to catch. Right, right. Well, it's interesting because Rose very much sees himself as the main character and very much does not see how his actions impact everyone else. And so it would be kind of a a fun meta twist for the second season of this show to not have him as the main character. Yes, yes, I definitely agree. I, I would love for the second season to not have him in it at all. I think that would yes. be like a best case scenario. Uh, but if they want to, like, have him, you know, have him, like, have a small part or a small redemption arc, I guess that would be okay. But he is, I, I think he is definitely the least sympathetic and the least lived in uh, part of the show. Like, the show, it leans too much, I think, on him just being, like, the straight white dude. Yeah, who we, like, are implicitly supposed to trust. Um, I would, like, maybe the second season could be them solving his murder. Oh, wouldn't that be great? Yeah, that could be fun. Um, yeah, do we have anything more that we would like to say about Ragdoll? Um, just, you know, the strong female characters, I feel, yeah. are, are a great, great thing to see. Um, particularly that there, are, that there are two of them in this show. Yeah. Um, a, a lot of times you'll get, like, one, you know, one, like, strong female lead in a, in a wilderness of dudes. Um, yes. And so this is this is something that I really liked that we had uh, that we had two strong women uh, that it definitely passes the Bechdel test early For on. Sure. 
uh, that there's a lot of like interaction uh, between Lake and Emily um, and that they're the ones who are actually like good at doing the detective work. So I loved the strong female characters. Um, and I loved like just, you know, having seen Lucy in Pretty Little Liars for so long, just to see like the echoes of one show in the other, like there's that scene where Lake says, sometimes it seems like only our mistakes have consequences. Yeah. Um, which is like a line I could really hear Arya saying. Uh, yeah. And also just the idea, like it's so prevalent in this show of bargaining, of like the way that yeah. like, uh, the way that Rose has like struck a bargain with the Faust. And I feel like that's something that we see on PLL all the time where the liars are kind of trying to like bargain uh, with A uh, for like whatever semblance of like freedom or autonomy uh, that they can have. Well, it's also, that's such a good point because also the fact that he specifically called out the hit on the arsonist and gets that. The guy is killed, but then it's like, now you have to deal with all of these repercussions of it. Um, yeah, I I totally agree. I love, of course, you know, adding to our commentary on the queerness of Lucy's character that like, there's absolutely no element. Like if there is a love triangle to be had in this show, Emily is at the center of it, not Rose. Yes. Uh, I love, I love just seeing a show that like, there is zero, like there is competition between characters in this department, but there is not competition between Lake and Emily. There is like, respect between them and like I like the how Emily is sort of slowly won over by Lake and how Lake just clearly thinks Emily is like the coolest person in the world well and Emily uh Emily is always right like every time there's a debate about like what should be done the correct answer is whatever Emily had said to do Um, yeah like (laughs) like regardless of consequences like um that's that's what should have happened so i love that there's a really great scene like this is a very grim grisly sort of show uh but there's a great scene where emily and uh a random like higher up police are going uh and they have to arrest someone who is also a a police uh but who has been involved in one of the previous crimes uh and they need to go arrest him and Emily is like, well, we just have to go in there and do it. And like the higher up muckety muck that's going with her is like, no, 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 we, we need to be discreet. We need to like keep it on the down low. We need to like, you know, not, not make it embarrassing. And Emily is like, I really don't see why. And he's like, this is, you know, this is the way it's done. And so they go in and muckety muck is like trying to, you know, kind of play it cool. And as soon as the guy walks in the room, Emily just arrests him and handcuffs him. And yeah. Then the other guy is like, oh, no, why have you done this? So he's going to like, Emily just wants to like take the guy out, put him in the police car, you know, take him away. Um, but Muckety Muck is like trying to like get him to a side elevator, but like they they need his handprint and his hands are handcuffed. And so they're <laughs> trying to like, they're trying to like get him to like lift up his hands. It's ridiculous. That's not working. So eventually the guy's like, okay, I'm going to bundle him out this door. And the door is like an emergency door that's tripwired. So they get him out the door and alarm sounds. And then all of his cronies in the building have to like file out and see him getting put in the cop car because that dude just set off an alarm on the entire building. So it's like a great, like that's a great funny scene. And also like a metaphor for how like 
the white guys who want to play by the white guy rules are the ones who are like making everything one million times worse than if they just like followed procedure as suggested by Emily from the jump. Exactly, exactly. And there are so many moments of that throughout the season where like a white guy is just being stupid and Emily or sometimes Lake are like, no, that's not how we're going to do it. Or like, that's stupid. Like, they're just like, stop that. Um, and yeah, I, I love that a lot. A, a thing that's interesting about the show is it's actually very funny. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of moments of humor uh, that, that are kind of surprising. It's I, it's executive produced by the same team that did Killing Eve. And I know that like Killing Eve is a very uh, hot button topic for people these days. Uh, but I think it is kind of similar tonally in that it has the the grisly, you know, murders and the the really sort of dark things happening but also that like thread of of dark humor that is sometimes just like really really funny yeah yeah also i want to talk about like we know uh we've seen lucy hale for many years on pretty little liars uh and we've watched her in uh, a lot of other things some good some not so good um but i really think that this is like this this is her finest work outside of of pll like of anything that i've ever seen her in She's phenomenal. She's phenomenal. And it is like, what I like is that, yes, there are for sure echoes of Arya in this character, but she also feels completely different from Arya. Like, I I think it's it's easy when somebody is so good at inhabiting a character for so many years to just sort of assume that like, oh, well, that's just who they are. And like, they're they're not really playing a character. They're just like playing this version of themselves. And I feel like this show really proves that like, no, she has a ton of range. Uh, she also looks great. It's a very attractive Ooh. role for Lucy Hale. Um, very, you know, good queer wardrobe. Good, like, just, it's good. It's a good look. Yeah. <laughs> it is. It is. It is a good, like, queer thirst look that Lucy is is rocking um, throughout, <laughs> throughout this uh, particular series. Also, the other, the only other thing that I really wanted to hit on was, uh, so we know Lucy as, like, a tiny human, like a, yes. a short, uh, a short, compact um, little package of a person. And there is a scene where uh, Emily is in physical danger uh, during the during the prison uh, prison van explosion. Uh, <laughs> like, there's so much going on in that scene. Like the yes. person. Uh, the person who is on the kill list has been drugged, and so the prison van has careened out of control. There was, like, an explosion in the underground garage. There's a snake waiting in a backpack. Like, so many things. There's, like, water spraying everywhere. Yeah. yeah, Yeah. A a thousand things are happening, like, all around. Um, But Emily is in a physical confrontation with a prisoner from the prison van uh, who is like trying to escape and is trying to like uh, beat Emily up. And like, this is one of those situations where the instructions were like, Lake, stay in the car, whatever yeah. you do, don't get out of the car. Uh, but because Emily is being uh, like, Emily is in a great deal of danger. Emily is, uh, you know, Emily is not having the upper hand in this fight. Uh, Lake runs out of the car and starts beating on this prisoner and it is uh it is something it is something to see uh her playing a character with that much physical bravery 
and with that yeah. much like with with that much um you know physical power uh behind her i thought that that was really uh really a an interesting choice and something that we don't uh you know like Arya's role on PLL is like she's trapped in a box on a train and she's being like nail gun to, to with some plastic. Yeah, um, you, I guess I guess you do get to see her on PLL. You get to see her like use her karate moves uh, <laughs> on Sydney with the Namaste bitch, and you know you do get to see her kick Charlotte off of that. Yep. Um, off of that platform sometimes, but I I liked this. I liked this sort of like gritty physical bravery from her. Oh, I totally agree. And uh, yeah, Lucy Hale would have made a good Buffy, I think. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's really, it's it's fun to see. You know, when you were talking about how she's how she's uh, a small person, I was thinking about the, the conversation with Emily. Prezra just likes small women. Small, <laughs> tiny little women who are actually little girls. It's not that weird, Emily. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I also just, I cannot tell you how much of a joy it is to see Lucy Hale not having to deal with Prezra Fitz. Like, oh my gosh, and not having to deal with any men. It's so, yes. I mean, like, yeah. she has to deal with them in the sense that they exist and they're annoying. But, like, for her to not be enmeshed in... She's not interested in any of the men. She does not give a fuck about any of the men. And it is really great to see. Yeah, love, love that. Uh, love that for her and love that like her main like like the like you can say like there's this will they won't they between uh Emily and and Nathan Rose but like really I I feel like the the beating heart of the mystery is like whether uh whether Lake and Emily are going to be able to solve the case like their yeah um their partnership really uh really is what gets the show where it needs to go yeah and any t like I feel like there's a real sense that that Lake does not want to let Emily down and I really like that theme throughout the season oh yeah and we talked about like when uh when Lake like runs out and and saves Emily uh also there's the time when like Emily knows that Lake has gone to the killer's house and may be in grave danger and she is like Oh my goodness. Like she is yeah. absolutely beside herself. Yes. Uh, trying to get there, trying to get the local police there, uh, frantically trying to find like the hidden passage that's going to like let them uh let them save Lake, uh, which of course they they do successfully do. But oh man, the way that that's like also very liars, like the way they're just actually yes. saving each other's lives. Well, and also in this, in the hectic prison van scene, uh, when they eventually apprehend the prisoner, there is this like look of extreme satisfaction that passes between them. And it really feels like they should just seal the moment with a kiss, doesn't it? Oh, it does. It definitely does. Yeah. Well, anything more we want to say about Ragdoll? I think we've covered it. Um, yeah, I would recommend, despite the failings of the AMC Plus marketing department, uh, if you're into British crime shows, uh, or if you just want to see Lucy Hale playing queer and looking really good doing it, um, <laughs> this this is a show that I would definitely recommend. Yes, yes, I completely agree. It's a it's a tight. I mean, it's like a six episode mystery, 
Um, and it it moves. It's really compelling. And uh, it cannot be overstated how great and how queer Miss Lucy Hale is in this role. Yes. Uh, or how great a disservice it is that we were unaware. Yes. We apologize to you, dear listeners, <laughs> that we didn't let you know about this. But again. Right. Uh, yeah. Again, uh, the, the algorithm missed us. It failed. It failed. Well, it has been very fun doing this run of bonus episodes. Uh, but next week, it is back to business. It is back to business and back to the world of PLL. Yes, our interlude must come to an end. And back we must go into the wilds of season seven. Is this, is the first episode, is that one TikTok, bitches? I think it might be. I was thinking about how funny it is that, I'll look it up. I was thinking about how funny it is that that episode did not air that long ago. And yet TikTok means something entirely different now. Uh, uh, Yes, it is TikTok, bitches, uh, which was, that was cracking me up as just like how, how quickly, how quickly things become irrelevant. It's true. Um, That was like June of 2016. That was not tremendously long ago. It was not. It was not. But hey, TikTok is something different. And oh, it will it will be it will be what it will be. Um, Oh, one thing that I did want to mention is that uh, Tamin Sursak, who played uh, Jenna Marshall on PLL, has herself has a podcast. Uh, I believe it is called Women on Top. Women on Top or Women on Top. And uh, she has interviewed some of the PLL cast. And um, so I have only, you've listened to a couple of them. I've only listened to the Lindsay Shaw episode, which came out in April of 20, April 22nd of 2020. Uh, it is very interesting and very illuminating and spills a lot of behind the scenes tea. Uh, so if anybody wants to check those episodes out and uh, if you want to write in with your thoughts on them, we'd, we'd love to, we'd love to hear it. Yeah, she, she interviews a lot, as you said, of the PLL cast. Um, some of the guys, I have not listened to their episodes because I don't really care about them as much. Um, but <laughs> she she interviews Lindsay. She interviews Janelle. Uh, she interviews Vanessa Ray, who played Cece Drake, of course. Um, she interviews yeah. uh, she interviews Melissa Hastings. Uh, and I, I know that there's an interview with Ian Harding. Uh, and I believe that there's also an interview with Keegan at some point. Um, so those are those are the ones that I know about. I haven't listened to all of them. Uh, and I think that Lindsay's is probably going to be the one that like goes into it the most, but oh, yeah. I still, I, I, I listened to the Janelle episode as well. And I, I, I mean, you're not going to like bore me by talking about PLL <laughs> stuff. Like that's, not, right. <laughs> like, that's realistically not going to happen. Um, so yeah. Also, it, I told you about this in the Janelle episode, um, because Tamman and her co-host are both, uh, are both moms. Uh, when Janelle talks about her routine in quarantine and mentions taking naps, uh, both of the hosts are like, "A nap? You took a nap? You nap every day?" They were like, "So," <laughs> uh, they were like, "So amazed by napping." But I was like, "Oh, that's the thing I'm going to develop more gratitude for. Like next time, yeah. I, next time I take a nap, I'm going to think like, oh, I'm so glad that I don't have to like worry about anybody but myself right now in my desire to take a nap." So. There you go. That's my tip. (laughs) Nap gratitude. And to all of our listeners uh, from from Jenna's podcast, uh, be grateful when you get to take a nap. 
And I'll just say, like, the Lindsay Shaw episode, I was, we were, like, live texting back and forth <laughs> as we were simultaneously listening to it. And we were like, oh, my God, I can't believe she said that. Oh, my God, I can't believe she said that. Um, it is, yeah, it is, there's some really interesting stuff in there about Marlene, about Shay. Um, so, yeah, if you, if you want a little bit of, of hot goss or, yes, cold goss because it's from several years ago um then yeah you might you might enjoy checking that out uh but she also talks about some really um you know interesting deep stuff about addiction and about anxiety and so yeah it's a good listen well and i think like to give context more context on Paige leaving the show yes uh, and about like why some of those decisions might be made about how it was for Lindsay on set um yeah i i thought that it was i thought that it was a very interesting episode uh, and and particularly like some of her some of her takes on Shay and and Marlene, which yeah, yes, take with a grain of salt, but very interesting. Um, all right, well, I think we've said everything we need to say. Uh, if you have any thoughts on Ragdoll or on Tamman's podcast, Women on Top, or on anything else at all, you can of course send us an email at everybodyapodcast at gmail dot com. You can also check out our Instagram at Everybody A Podcast. You can also check out our Spotify, Everybody A, Everybody Gay. And you can also leave us a rating and review on iTunes. We would appreciate it. We will be back next week with, cannot believe it, season seven. It is wild. Oh, till then, take care.